This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. There's no ROI on TMI. That's why TD Ameritrade created a learning experience that will actually learn with you. Curated from their vast library of exclusive content, it customizes to fit your investing goals, interests, and needs, so you get exactly the information you need and none of the information you don't. Get started at tdameritrade.com education. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com education. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you a little money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach you, put it in context. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me. Jim Cramer. After spending most of the day in the red, the market roared higher this afternoon. Dow closing up 60 points. S&P advancing 0.18%. NASDAQ declined just 0.05%. Not bad. Not bad. But I want to say right at the top that if we get more strength tomorrow, I think you should use it to take some profits and reposition rather than getting all excited and going all in. Especially because, remember, Fridays have been mighty rough around here lately. Don't get me wrong. I want to be as optimistic and opportunistic as ever. I don't want you to give up and go home, let alone sell everything. Believe me, if I thought there was real systemic risk, I would just tell you to get out of Dodge. I'm not doing that. In fact, I'm on the hunt right now for some quality stocks that got thrown out with the bathwater, including this very evening. But there are very good reasons to be concerned here. Reasons why you should use any real strength as an opportunity to do some selling. Look, at the end of every show, I tell you, there's always a bull market somewhere. The problem here is that there simply aren't as many bull markets as there were a few months ago. Individual stocks can pop. Oh, boy, we had some terrific numbers from Boeing and Norfolk Southern this morning. And then Facebook and some semiconductors this evening that propelled their stocks higher, including advanced micro devices. We'll be interviewing AMD CEO Dr. Lisa Sue tomorrow morning on Squawk on the Street. And I can't wait to talk to her about that company's upside surprise. Chipotle also issued terrific numbers, and we will have Brian Nichols, the CEO of that comeback story, on Squawks 2. Nichols also did a buyback. What a lineup. However, we've also had some real doozies this quarter, and those companies that miss see their stocks go down a lot more than the good ones go higher. We've also had some companies with fantastic numbers, but a lot of good stocks, like the banks, have done nothing in response to those rip-roaring quarters. I find that risk-reward somewhat worrisome. Let me explain that while I remain optimistic, and I'm stressing that, okay, I am wary and not feeling particularly sanguine here. I'm picking tonight to talk a little more conservatively because... There's enough good news this very evening from many different sectors that it's reasonable to expect a good day or at least a good morning tomorrow. So maybe you can take advantage, do some trimming, do some repositioning. The way I see it, this market has a dozen different worries that I'm losing a little sleep over. And I don't get much sleep to begin with. First, let's tick them down. President Trump's tariffs on $100 billion of Chinese goods could come any day now. 
Remember, he dropped this particular bombshell out of nowhere, and we still don't know what he's going to target. There are tons of companies that rely on imports from China. Any of their numbers could be at risk. Who wants that kind of uncertainty? Second, once the president decides what to target, you think the Chinese are just going to say no problem? No, they'll retaliate. Maybe they'll hit us with tariffs of the, on their own. Maybe they'll organize boycotts of American products. Nothing's really off limits with the PRC. You want to own our country's big tech companies if China's hopping mad? My forecast is the same as Mr. T's in that legendary Rocky Three. Pain! Third NAFTA. I keep hearing the negotiations are going smoothly, but love them or hate them. The idea that anything's going smoothly between Trump and Mexico was hard to swallow. Our relationship with our neighbor to the south is the worst I've ever seen it, and the peso is doing nothing. Hey, it would be going up here if those talks were going really well. Fourth, last month, the president exempted a bunch of major U.S. allies from the steel and aluminum tariffs. Those exemptions expire on May 1st when we find out how these duties will be actually implemented and who they'll hit. This matters. According to the conference calls I've been hearing in the last couple of days, some steel prices are up 50 percent year over year. This could hit. Fifth, the president has also threatened to put tariffs on European cars. For him, this is a fairness issue. Europe has a 10% duty on American auto imports. We have a 2.5% duty on European auto imports. We do now have a 25% duty on foreign trucks, which is why you rarely see those German trucks in America. But if the president goes ahead with this, let's just say the timing would be pretty darn terrible. Sixth, if Trump does increase German auto tariffs, say Europe will retaliate. Not good. Hopefully we don't go down this path. Seventh, Iran. What can I say? The president wants to scrap the Iran nuclear deal, but it doesn't seem like he's got anything to replace it with. Needless to say, our allies are not thrilled. More importantly, the stock market tends to respond poorly to geopolitical turmoil. Eighth, Syria. Remember Syria? Not long ago, the market had a severe reaction when President Trump launched a missile strike on some chemical weapons plants in Syria. The next day, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad was seen laughing, laughing with his Russian advisors. What happens the next time he uses chemical weapons? Until there's some kind of resolution in Syria, this issue is going to keep stalking us. Ninth, inflation is here. It's undeniable. It's on every conference call. Some of the inflation is government mandated, like aluminum and steel. Some of it has to do with shortages caused by high demand, notably lumber, transport. The cost of freight is being bid up pretty much everywhere. Trucks, planes, trains. Just check today's Norfolk Southern blowout. What a quarter. I think the explosion of e-commerce is driving this. Too many packages, not enough ways to ship. But we also have oil. We got a Permian Basin bottleneck at a time when global economic expansion is causing a surge in demand. And OPEC nations have dramatically underinvested in their oil fields. Demand can send oil still higher. Worrisome. Combine this with a possible slowdown from tariffs, and the bears are going to say stagflation. You heard it here at 100th, right? It's not first. You hear it. And I just need to put it in front on this show, too. Tenth, peak earnings. Until yesterday's ridiculous, I mean, really, kind of a fatuous and totally bizarre Caterpillar conference call where they told you how early they were in the turn in their business and then decked you by saying that the last quarter was the high watermark. I didn't hear much about peak earnings. But when one of the largest manufacturers on earth talks about a high watermark for its earnings, that opens the floodgates to all of this chatter about a peak. I heard it all day on many different conference calls. This may not die down for a little while. Now, we know we've hit peak autos. That was ages ago. Ford did have a good quarter tonight, though. Stocks tend to reflect it. Peak housing, who the heck knows? Yesterday, Pulte Homes we were nowhere near a peak. Stock went up. But it's an easy case to make against the homebuilders in an environment where rates keep going up. Eleventh, the tech, the, uh, tech arms race. FANG has become a, bottle, a battleground for many people. 
If Alphabet wants to take market share from Amazon Web Services, it needs to spend a fortune. If Netflix wants to stay ahead of the competition, it needs to, it needs to spend a fortune. The same goes for momentarily uh, the new re-beloved, is that a word? Re-beloved Facebook. And, of course, Amazon conquering the world. These are expensive. You know I still like Fang? These are growth companies. Growth companies should be spending as you'll see later in the show. But many investors, not me, but many other investors, take a pretty dim view of gigantic capital expenditures. So keep this on the radar screen. Finally, 12th is the one that everybody talks about nonstop, but I put it low, and that's interest rates. Yeah, that's what everyone's concerned about, so it's the one thing I don't need to worry about because everyone's doing it for me. I don't think higher rates from these levels are the end of the world, even as they're up dramatically from the 2016 lows. More on that later, and it's going to be demonstrable with pictures. However, the algorithms say that the yield in the 10-year crossing above 3% is catastrophic, hence yesterday's meltdown. Meanwhile, the higher-yielding consumer packaged goods stocks are being decked because their dividends look less attractive by comparison. Now, it doesn't take a genius to figure out any of these. This stuff is plain as the nose on my face. But the fact is, there's nothing on this list that can be undone by time or by lower prices. Whenever one of these issues flares up, it can take us lower, even if we're already down substantially. Bottom line, look, we're going to get through this. We always do, right? We'll do it together. You need to stay the course because I don't see big systemic risk here. But I think some cautions warranted and almost, yeah, let's just say reasonable to expect that something bad could happen. The market needs to run a brutal gauntlet, and the current gauntlet is a lot harder to navigate than anything we've seen around here in a long time. That's what's bothering me. That's what has me concerned. And that's why I think you may want to use any additional strength tomorrow to trim some positions, raise some cash, so you have the ammunition to buy into weakness caused by any of these 12 very nagging concerns. Cindy in Pennsylvania. Cindy! Hi, Jim. How are you? I'm good, Cindy. How about you? Good, thank you. Hey, my question concerns SuperValue. They recently announced selling eight distribution centers to an unnamed buyer. This unnamed buyer has given the option of a lease back for a guarantee of 20 years with renewal options every five years. SuperValue has historically bought and resold failing warehouse businesses like Albertsons and Wetterall. Mm-hmm. And it seems like their business plan is buying unprofitable businesses, realigning existing holdings to accommodate the new acquisitions, then reselling the newly purchased businesses. Right, With right. Grocery, but, warehousing, and sales to stores is a second thought. But, but, but see, Cindy, here's the problem. It's not particularly well run, and it doesn't have a great balance sheet. At the same time, Costco boosted its dividend last night from 50 to 57 cents. It's very well run, and it has a fabulous balance sheet. We like well-run enterprises with growth that have great balance sheets. That's why I'm going to tell you, even up here, I like Costco a heck of a lot more than I like Super Value. Let's go to Skip in Colorado. Skip. How are you? I am good, Skip. How about you? Booyah. I'm in Lafayette, Louisiana today. Lafayette! Alonzo Lafayette! That's it, baby. Thank you. Well, Jim. what are we thinking here? Jim. Yeah. Win. Win Resorts. Talk to me. Tell me what, what your thought is on this. I, I got to tell you, I looked, at, I looked at the numbers yesterday. They blew it out. Talk to me. Skip, you're absolutely right. The quarter was terrific. Uh, there was a lot to like that was good. But I think that people, in the end, won Steve Wynn back. And they're not going to get Steve Wynn. He ain't coming back. And a winless win says, go buy MGM. Okay, I'm not going to lie to you. I, 
I'm a little queasy. It's not an easy market, but we're going to get through it as we always do because, look, we have some really good numbers tonight and maybe get to lighten up tomorrow. On Man Money tonight, the 10-year Treasury yield broke through that faded 3% level yesterday. I'm getting into the market psyche and telling you what it means for the global economy going forward. Then the market's been a roller coaster of late, and you know what? I think you've got some questions. So tonight I'm opening the phone lines after yesterday's incredible decline to help you navigate the unknown. And then Google, Facebook, and other tech giants are spending a ton. But is that a good thing or a bad thing? Stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. For weeks, I've been trying to prepare you for the moment when the yield on the benchmark 10-year treasury, okay, crosses 3%. Sure enough, we finally breached that number yesterday morning, albeit only briefly, and all hell broke loose with the Dow ultimately closing down 425 points. Then today we crossed 3% and we stayed there. Now, you now have lots of investors and commentators acting like this is indeed the end of the world, or the very least, I should say, the end of the bull. That's why tonight I wanted to explain to you exactly why the 10-year breaching 3% has so many people panicking. And more importantly, why I think their fear is misplaced. This is not the equivalent of the communists crossing the 38th parallel in Korea. It's not Caesar crossing the Rubicon. In fact, it's the entirely predictable consequence of a strong economy both here and around the world. I repeatedly told you it was practically inevitable. I also warned you that when we crossed 3%, the market would sell off hard. Sell, 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 sell. Because investors have gotten so used to lower rates and the 3% level is so symbolically significant. Emphasis on significant. Well, no, actually, emphasis on symbolically. And that's why I want to just say for a moment, did you see the market today? Stayed at 3%, opened down 200, then came right back because it is symbolic. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. My goal here is to put this whole scenario into its proper context, which I think has been sorely lacking. The truth is, there are some very good reasons why money managers generally fear and loathe higher interest rates. So let me give you a little economics 101. All else being equal, higher rates are net negative for the economy. Commerce runs on lending. The 10-year treasury is one of the key benchmarks for long-term interest rates. Everything's keyed off of it. So when it goes up, you're going to be paying more for any kind of auto loan, business loan, mortgage. The only companies that really benefit are the financials because banks are the ones doing the lending. They go uh, take the rates higher, and that translates immediately into more money into their pockets. But for everyone else, any increase in long-term interest rates, it hurts a little bit. And that pain starts to add up, and that's why people were really freaking out. Lower rates are better for the stock market than higher rates. Okay, that is a given. And to be fair, rates have moved up fairly dramatically in a short period of time, especially on a relative basis. Look at this first chart. It shows that last September, the yield in the 10-year dipped down to roughly 2%. Okay, see that? Now it's above 3%. Isn't that a huge increase? Whoa! Not so fast, Kimisabi. 
By historical standards, 3%, even after this tremendous jaunt, is insanely low. If you look at this chart for the last 100 years, it shows that back before the Great Recession, you need to go all the way back to the 1950s before you find a period where the 10-year was under 3%. Rachel really got this low in the first place because the economy nearly blew up 10 years ago. Remember I tell you that was catastrophic, okay? The center might not hold. And the Federal Reserve spent years keeping it on life support via quantitative easing, buying long-term bonds to artificially force down long-term interest rates and thus spur lending get the economy juiced again. You know what? It worked. Fed doesn't get enough credit. Now, though, the Fed is gradually unloading those longer-term holdings, and that's going to push rates higher. Okay, so, you know, it's kind of a blip, isn't it, when you think about it? I mean, come on. Stay focused. Now, that makes the picture a little murky, a little, well, you know, because the main cause of rising Treasury yields, a stronger economy, eludes a lot of people. When investors and businesses have lots of opportunities to put their money to work, they don't want to leave them sitting around in treasury bonds, so they sell treasuries. And when treasury prices go down, their yields go up. That's the thing you need to understand. Higher rates hurt the economy, but they're also a sign of economic strength. It could be building ahead of steam. Eventually, they go high enough that the economy does slow down. I'm not ignoring that. We get a recession, rates fall, whole boom-bust cycle starts all over again. I regard that as unavoidable, frankly. That's the fear. But the 10-year 3% is nowhere near high enough to send us into a recession, at least not on its own. There are a lot of things that are worth worrying about in this market. Raw cost and wage inflation and escalating trade war with China. Companies like Caterpillar talking about how their numbers may be peaking, at least when it comes to their margins. A growing budget deficit that may ultimately, and there the emphasis on ultimately, cause a further spike in rates because it forces the Treasury to issue more bonds. But the 10-year crossing the 3% threshold is pretty low on my list of concerns that I talked about at the top of the show. Why? Because I've lived through many periods where the market roared higher in spite of rising interest rates. For most of my lifetime, the yield in the 10-year has been well above 3%. When I got into this business in the early 80s, it was above 10%. As I see it, things are just getting back to normal. And you know what? I kind of like normal. I mean, even me. And history tells us the stock market can rally even when rates are rising. Consider the chart of the yields during the 1990s. Broadly speaking, this was a period of falling interest rates, but there were three periods in the 90s when the yield on the 10 years surged higher. 1994, 1996, and 1999. And you can see all of them, okay? In 94, the S&P shed 1.5%. Okay, suboptimal. But the Dow gained 2.1%. So if you bought the big cap stocks, you did well. Eh, not great, but it's hardly the end of the world. In 1996, the S&P surged up 20%. Dow gained 26%. What a year that was for me because I was actually pretty bullish. I'll take it. And in 1999, while everybody made money, we saw insane runs. S&P rising 19%. Dow flying 25%. NASDAQ losing its mind, gaining 85%. Of course, 1999 was shortly before the dot-com bubble imploded the next year. But there's no looming bubble that's waiting to burst. And back then, you had plenty of opportunities to take profits before the implosion. All you had to do, remember, this is what you had to remember. You had to remember that bulls make money. You had to remember that bears make money. And you had to remember that pigs, well, pigs, they get slaughtered. How about a more recent example? Look at this chart from mid-203 to mid-207, 2007, okay? This is really interesting. The yield in the 10-year climb from a little above 3%, to roughly 5%. That's four years of steadily rising long-term interest rates. And, of course, during this period, the Federal Reserve was hiking short-term rates just <laughs> mechanically. Hmm, four years of steadily rising rates. And what happened? 
Let's see the S&P 500 climb nearly 55% during the period. Dow gained almost 50%. Nasdaq advanced 60%. Of course, I can hear some of you already. In 2007, the financial crisis started snowballing, resulting in the worst economic catastrophe since the Great Depression. Sure, absolutely. Eventually, rates may well rise to the level where they send us into a recession. That's what happened in 2007 when the Fed mindlessly tightened the short rates without paying any attention to the data and ended up strangling the economy. But again, we're nowhere near those levels. Remember, we had four years of the stock market rallying like a champ in the mid-2000s before we gave up the ghost. The yield on the 10-year bottom less than two years ago. So we've got plenty of time. And you can always take profits, okay? Remember that. You can take profits. There's nothing wrong with riding a rally higher and then ringing the register when things get precarious. That's part of my job is to try to help you do this. So what, what do you own in this post-3% environment? First of all, like I mentioned earlier, this is nirvana for the banks. I adore the big money centers, J.P. Morgan City, Bank of America. They are the most direct beneficiaries, even though their stocks act absolutely terribly. Same goes for the same, uh, smaller regional banks. I like First Horizon, which we just heard from last Friday. I've also been buying Goldman Sachs for my charitable trust, even as it has been a total house of pain. Hey, that's okay. The banks can all go a little lower here. Stocks go lower. It's okay. They actually get cheaper as they come down. What else tends to work in an environment where rates are rising? Well, big cap tech stocks. You know I'm a fan of Alphabet, which continues to not nearly get enough credit for the fabulous numbers that it had and also has the added advantage of not doing any business in China. Worried about a little China? I know, but Intel works too. And you can own the safe industrials that benefit from a strong economy. That's typically what you're supposed to be buying, according to like the hedge fund handbook. Boeing just reported an amazing quarter today, yet its stock's nearly uh, off nearly 30 points from its highs. Huge fan here of United Technologies. Charitable Trust owns Honeywell. The former reported great quarter. The, uh, uh, the latter appeals to me because of its breakup value. I've got um, the, the uh, United Technologies in the bullpen for club members of ActionLearsPlus.com. That's how much I like that situation. Greg Hayes, what a conference call. Nobody cared. It was on a big down day. What should you avoid? Well, classically, you have to avoid the high yielders. Every time the yield in the 10-year ticks higher, stocks that pay big, fat dividends like the utilities become less attractive versus risk-free treasuries. That's a tough headwind. They need to generate gigantic earnings beat to give you a reason to stay. And, you know, we don't get that with many utility stocks, and we talk to a lot of them. Sure, periodically, you do get a high yielder who blows out the number. As we saw last night, remember we had six flags? They reported excellent numbers, and then that stock rallied 8.49%. Still yields about 5%. Or, to get things really going, say with a consumer packaged goods stock, Magin has to be willing to take bold action, like breaking up the business or putting the whole company up for sale. Otherwise, unfortunately, I think you got to pass. The bottom line, despite the big freak out over the 10-year crossing 3%, this is the wrong thing to worry about here. Now, this market has plenty of other problems. As I mentioned them all at the top, I ticked them right down. But the 10-year by itself is not enough to slay the bull, as I just showed you with these charts. It just means you need to be a little more selective and less panicky when executing that discerning strategy. Stick with Craig. There's always a bull market somewhere. Yes, I'm standing by that, of course, but this one's a wild one. Not as easy to grab the bull by the horns. Today's gains are certainly a pre from yesterday's sell-off. And judging by tonight's earnings parade, including Facebook, we got good numbers, Visa. Don't forget AMD. We got Lisa Sue on tomorrow's squawk on the street. Hey, we might have a good Thursday morning. So there's an opportunity, and I don't want you to miss it both to lighten up and maybe even to buy. As always, I'm here to help. So tonight, I'm opening up the phone lines to hear from you, 
the voices of Cray America. I want to hear your thoughts, questions, concerns. Lay it out on the table. I'll do my best to give you answers. We'll interact with each other. Let's get started. Let's go to Pedro in Florida, please, Pedro. Booyah, ski daddy. Yo, yo, man, what's shaking? I'm a big fan, and I thank you for all your help on behalf of millennials like myself. Happy. Happy to help yourself. I'm glad you called. How can I help? So my question is, uh, with interest rates going up and trade war with China getting more and more severe, how should I treat my financials and tech place? Facebook is my main concern right now as I got it into earnings. Well, look, I mean, I think that it is case by case. Facebook doesn't really have a lot of Chinese exposure. Facebook reported a really good number. You did some smart buying. I think you're good. But now, overall, understand, a lot of the tech companies do have exposure to China. So you have to be prepared for something that uh, retaliation this weekend, something that the Chinese might do, something that our president might do. Let me ask you, Pedro, are you comfortable with a level of volatility that we've not seen in ages for technology? Absolutely. I'm a big believer in technology. And can I ask you how old you are? Yes. How old are you? Uh, I'm 24. Okay, so here's a perfect example. You got your whole life ahead of you to make whatever you. No, I don't, man. I'm a, I, I, I'm a little later in the game. But you have got the opportunity, and you should ride it out. And if you get real weakness based on this continued trade war, you do more buying. Congratulations on picking up some Facebook when everybody else was running from it. That's, let's go to Michael in Indiana. Michael. Kramer, how are we today? Long oh, time, man, couldn't be uh, better. How are you? Listener. All right, what's up? Uh, I want to start off by just throwing you a big old booyah from Indiana University. And how much fun did we have when we went there? Remember Mark Cuban had that incredible shot from the baseline? It was a great show. What's up? Kelly School. Love it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. So I want to talk to you today about the 10-2 index. Historically, it's been a really solid way to to see when a recession is coming. Um, When it goes negative, it happened in the 80s. It happened during Y2K. And it happened in uh, 2008 as well. Uh, recently, we've been kind of moving closer to that point again in that that index is trending down. Um, but in the last few weeks, here, the the 10-year yield has skyrocketed to right. 3%, uh, making that less of a, a pressing issue. But I'm still hearing a lot of rumors about a possible recessionary period going into the next year. Um, I'd love to know what your take on that index is and uh, whether you think we're going to be heading down a recessionary path. Okay, so, Michael, you know that if there were not for uh, retaliation that I think is correct by the president, it would be really hard to believe that we could be going anywhere near recession, provided the Fed is measured. So let me ask you something. Do you think, because you're uh, probably studying these very issues, do you think that the trade war is going to be go beyond China? Do you think it's going to be in Europe? And do you see lots of tariff barriers being placed around the world? You know what? Uh, I could see it extending um, to Europe, where I really think it's going to affect more, those the Southeast Asian, uh, those emerging markets that really rely on China. And China's been down real bad the past right. few uh, weeks. And I think that's obviously a direct relation of the tariffs. But I think you're going to see a lot of smaller emerging markets being affected by those uh, tariffs more heavily than you would Europe. Okay, listening to you, uh, my translation that would be that we unlikely – 
to have a recession. I like your analysis, by the way. I'm looking at recession because if it's not going to have worldwide tariffs and we're not going to have a situation where uh, global economic uh, activity diminishes, then we'll, be, uh, we'll have a very normal recovery in this country, and that means stay the course. Antoine in New York. Antoine. Hey, how you doing there, Kramer? What's going on? Hey, uh, booyah. First and foremost, thanks for helping us home. You get in the game and stay in the game. And just want to ask a question around Forescope Technologies. Uh, a few weeks back, you made a recommendation on it. I uh, like the cyber play, so I took some uh, profits out of FireEye and moved them into Forescout. Over the past week, I've seen it going down, so I just wanted to get your advice on whether I should be trying to buy the dip. Look, I think Forescout's terrific, and I want you to buy more of it. I think that this is one of what we call secular growth story areas. Now, you know, I also, I mean, when we met with FireEye CEO when we were out in, uh, in California, I had to give that guy two thumbs up, too. So I like the secular trend. Now, remember, my favorite is Proofpoint, though. Proofpoint is the best. How about Seth in Massachusetts? Seth. Jim. Seth. Hey, uh, so listen, I've been getting all my info from you guys over there at CNBC for a lot of years. Oh, well, that's the right most, place to go. Most, most of it good. Um, the question is, I, uh, I'm wondering, with all the information you guys have been passing along since February uh, with the volatile market about uh, not selling, hanging tight, being okay, don't panic. Right. Um, and buying on the dip, taking advantage of the downturn. Uh, what money is it we're supposed to be using to buy these dips with? Uh, I've got a cash account that I keep, but that was really for just having cash in case the bottom totally fell out. And your advice to not really sell uh, stocks, I'm trying to not do that because I think all I've right. got a pretty good portfolio. So what do you recommend? Well, Seth, you got to get with the beat, first of all. Um, <laughs> what, what I think you got to do is you got to remember we have these huge spikes up. And you look at your stuff that doesn't have a good balance sheet. You look at your stuff that didn't report a great number, but got taken up in general with the rest of the market. And you trim. You do some cutting. Maybe you raise 7%. We did this exact same strategy for action alerts for club members. We raised 11% cash. And that's what we want to do. We want to have that cash for when we get hit again for, say, tariff, trade war, duties, Syria, 10-year all those things. You want some cash. Ed in Florida. Ed. 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 That's Scooby-Doo. Ha. Huh. Tough crowd. Um, where do you think, uh, Madam Executive Producer, we should go? You know what we're going to do? We're going to just wrap it up because that's probably our best situation. But how about the cacao? How about that beat that that gentleman had? I think we should just Seth, He got with a beat in the end. I'm sure this market isn't as easily navigated as any other gauntlet we've had lately. But, you know, there's good news or bad news. I just want, as that gentleman we were explaining to Seth, just raise a little cash into a spike, and then you'll be ready. Much more man money ahead. I'm getting the inside story on the clash of two of Wall Street's most aggressive players with a man who saw it all happen, a ringmaster. And I'm explaining why the skyrocketing spending from major tech players may not be a bad thing, including from Facebook. And all your calls, rapid fire, tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer.
Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Five years ago, two notorious billionaire activist investors, Bill Ackman and Carl Icahn, got into the Wall Street equivalent of a bare-knuckle boxing match from Scott Wadner's halftime report. For 27 minutes, there was like no trading going on at all. They clashed over Herbalife, the nutritional supplements company. Ackman was aggressively short. Icahn was long. But the whole thing quickly became personal real fast. Apparently, Icahn never watched that old George Carlin sketch about the seven words you're not allowed to say on television. It was surreal. In the end, Icahn made a killing in Herbalife, and Ackman short position lost a fortune. But more importantly, this episode showed you a lot about how the masters of the universe think. So let's check in with CNBC's own Scott Wapner, who refereed this grudge match and wrote a book about it, When the Wolves Bite, to learn more about this clash of the financial titans. Scott, welcome to Mad Money. Good to see you, buddy. Great to be here. All right, well, you got to see it to believe it. Great we got to go here. right Thank back. You. Have a seat. We're going to go you. right back, play a little tape, right. and then we're going to do some narration. All right, pal? Let's do it. Okay, let's go. The war of words between two hedge fund heavyweights is heating up with Carl Icahn bashing Bill Ackman over his short position in Herbalife. Carl Icahn thought, you know what, this guy's roadkill on the hedge fund highway. This is not an honest guy. Now it's time to hear what Carl Icahn thinks of our conversation. Carl, are you there? Bill, there? Yeah, I'm here. I am here as well. Ackman, he does bump a dumb. He's got one of the worst reputations on Wall Street. And I'm telling you, he's like the crybaby in the schoolyard. I mean, I wouldn't have an investment with Ackman if you paid me to do it. Carl, after the whole thing, called me up and he literally said, you know, Bill, we can be friends now. And I simply said to him, I said, look, Carl, you are no friend of mine. I never said that I want to be friends with, with you, Bill. I wouldn't okay. be friends okay, with Carl. you. And okay. I would, you said okay, to me, you'd, you'd like to be friends so that we could invest together. Carl, I have no interest. Do you think I want to invest with you? Okay, let's, let's move on. I would invest with you let's, if let's you move were the last man on Earth. All right, listen, as great as that was, I've got to tell you, the book, When the Wolves Bite, is so much more exciting than all of that tape. And I learned so much, Scott, Tell me what was going on right then and tell me how things got resolved. I have to tell you, when that was going on after it was over, I could barely remember anything that had happened because I think I was shell-shocked like everybody else who watched it uh, because it just all this emotion spilled out onto live television. And you could hear in the clip that we just played, in the background, though, oh, those were the traders on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And trading dropped trading, dramatically trading while volume, that was on. Trading volume dropped 20%. Now, let's talk, we're on mad money. So let's talk about something that I, I learned a ton about this and I thought I knew about it. Herbalife. It's, this was actually about a company stock. But in reality, these two personalities overshadowed the company they were playing with. Because the personalities were, were so big. I don't think very many people knew about Herbalife. You certainly did because you're the you're the man. Well, I mean, you I Michael, follow, Johnson, you know everything about know, every company. No, I didn't know any. You you got behind the scenes. No one had gotten back in Herbalife. No one knew what was going on. You did. I don't know how you got that stuff because it was incredible. Well, thank you. It it the access I think made the book. Yeah. Um, and I was surprised that they uh, participated as much as they did. But, but for many, a long time, they were they were so quiet. But in many ways, until they brought in a kind of political operative, they seemed a little naive about the both their friend, I, Icon, and their enemy, Acton. I think they thought it was going to last a matter of months and the whole thing would be over. I also think that Herbalife was just fine and content in letting first Dan Loeb and then Carl Icahn carry the weight right. of the anti-Ackman 
if you will, um, until Alan Hoffman uh, came in, uh, was chief of staff for Vice President Biden, and he sort of changed the game. He was like, look, this is not working. We need to be much more aggressive. I don't work? think you guys realize who we're dealing with here. We have to take the fight to Ackman. Why did Ackman make it so binary, Scott? Why was it a billion or nothing? What was that about? It, it was a binary bet, and it's dangerous. Uh, he was betting that the government was going to intervene and shut Herbalife down. As you said, a binary bet. There was no in-between. But you can't own the government. Well, the whole thesis was based on the fact that the government was going to act. And as you see in the book, I lay out uh, much of the strategy and what he did to try and sway the government to make it's its case. Amazing. It read so fast, I couldn't believe it. It's like page turn, page turn. Okay, I need to know this. Yeah. Did, did Icon bet with Herbalife, or was he betting against Act? Maybe a little bit of both. A little bit of both. I can tell you that I don't think that Icon would have made the investment against Ackman all by itself. You know, revenge is a powerful thing, but Icon's not stupid. But he didn't. If he didn't believe that he could make a lot of money in Herbalife, he wouldn't have done it. Ackman was the cherry on the Sunday, but the Sunday already w was looking pretty tasty. All right. Well, I want to tell everybody. Look. I was there. I watched it. I knew my. I knew all the figures. I didn't. It turned out I knew nothing. This book is a page turner. Yes, Wobner's my friend. But you know what? <laughs> Even if I, hey, I wouldn't give you my age, whatever. I still would love the book. CNBC's on Scott Walker. Thank Thanks you, so Sal. much, Jim. Great to see you. Bad Thank you. Back into the book. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. How come no one's saying in our ear, you got to go? Is this, this is the it's, only time I've ever heard not someone saying. That's the music. The music whispers, oh, you got to go. I was going to say that maybe there's some topics we can talk about, and they never tell us The music go. bed under the hole. Yeah. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. It is time. Seven the light rail. Three bucks for Africa. One in every and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Skate, daddy, time for the lightning round. Let's start with Barbara, New York. Barbara. Hey, Jim. I got crushed on Skechers. Do I hold U.S. Steel through earnings tomorrow or sell before? Uh, which stock was that? Letter X, U.S. Steel. No, no, we're not buyers of U.S. Steel. We like Nucor. I tell members of the Chapel Trust Club, you know, I've action alerts that Nucor had a great number. It just seems that people don't care. Let's go to Eric in Ohio. Eric. Hey, Jim. Booyah. Hey, I'm looking at Ball Metal. Uh, I like BLL. Ball. It's kind of like a benign oligopoly. I also thought that, uh, that CCK, I mean, this is an industry of cans. There are not a lot of players in and I think Paul's a big winner. Uh, let's go to Edward in Florida. Edward. Hi, how are you? I'm good, Edward. How about you? Great. Teva. Nah, Teva's not good enough. I mean, we got to have growth, consistent growth, and yield, and there's a bunch of really good drug companies that are going to give us that, and I feel much more happy with those. Joel in Illinois. Joel. Hey, Jimmy. Yo. Booyah. Booyah. CME Group. What's uh, happening? Oh, man, that is an ideal stock for this environment. It does well in volatility. It's incredibly well run. I think that Duffy, Mr. Duffy, has done a fantastic job. I like the choice. Let's go to Beth in New Jersey. Beth. 
Hi, Jim. I'd like your input on whether or not it's the right time to buy shares in Aqua America. You know what? This is an economy right now that is hot. And typically in a hot economy, that is not the stock you want to buy, even though it is a well-run company. John in New York. John! Jimmy, booyah. Booyah. What's going on? Nikki D's on the cheap. All right, the stock has come down enough. Now, QSR in a good quarter. Chipotle tonight in a good quarter. Hey, Mr. Nichols going to be on Squawk on the Street tomorrow. I'm saying yes to McDonald's right here. Buy half, then wait. Let's go to Daniel in New York. Daniel. Hello, how you doing? I'm calling asking about MWA, Mueller Water. I was the original shareholder when they spun that off from Sharon Steele, and I've got to tell you, this is not the time to buy. I don't like the numbers right here. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. People keep getting nervous when they see big tech companies spending like mad to meet demand. Even though I've got to tell you, it's working. Now, what the heck are they supposed to do with the money? Burn it? Throughout this earnings period, I've been struck by just how oblivious many investors are to the new tech food chain and how valuable it is. Large companies, especially Alphabet, Facebook, reporting good numbers tonight, and Amazon, are seeing explosive growth as people around the world flock to their offerings. Amazon just racked up its 100 millionth prime user. YouTube adoption and its cloud build are, are they're causing Alphabet to buy billions of dollars in capital equipment to meet the demand of YouTube. Facebook just reported some great numbers. Their capital expenditures did increase by, by 121% versus last year. Whoa! But just a second, this is good news. As the streets, Eric Johnson points out in a terrific piece about the Fang Arms race, Alphabet spent half of its gigantic capital expenditure budget on equipment last quarter. That's roughly $3.7 billion. Amazon keeps its capital expenditures close to the vest. But just imagine how much computing power they need to meet the insane demand their web services division is seeing. Yet in most cases, Wall Street hates everything I just said. They hate it when these companies' capital expenditures surge like this. But I think this view is totally misguided. In fact, I think it's one of the main reasons to like these stocks, even as everyone is always writing their obituaries, especially last night's obituary of Alphabet, which I think is going to prove premature. When you're looking at tech, you want innovative companies with so many opportunities that they don't want to just save the money or shell out big dividends. It would be bad business decisions to do so. You know what's even better than that? When a company like a Microsoft or Alphabet, Facebook, taps into the gigantic war chest, $142 billion, $100 billion, $80 billion respectively, to capitalize on the stunning growth of the cloud and get great customers that they'll hold on to for life. Confused? All right, let's look at this from another angle. We've heard from many of the big real estate investment trusts that specialize in owning data centers. They all come on this show. We just spoke last week to Cyrus One. What did they tell us? They said we're just at the beginning of the adoption phase of the cloud. There are still tons of companies that have yet to move away from old-fashioned, what we call on-premise software, which means the theme is in its early innings. That's the gold rush, people. You want people in there. You want these companies in there. 
When these companies do move, you know what they're going to do? They're going to sign up with Amazon Web Services. They're going to sign up with Google Cloud. They're going to sign up with Microsoft's Azure. These three companies have to spend to meet that demand. But the return on this investment should be multi-year and fantastic. It's what you want to see. Now, compare that to the consumer packaged goods companies. They spend fortunes, too, but their returns are pretty meager. Or the energy companies. They shell out massive amounts of money on CapEx, and their returns are totally hostage to the fluctuations of the price of oil. The industries uh, all need the heavy industrials. They all need to invest heavily in equipment. And when they add capacity, believe me, they're getting a much smaller return than an Alphabet or an Amazon or a Facebook will see from their cloud investments. In those industries, it's simply understood that this is the cost of doing business. Well, the same goes for the cloud plays. They have to spend to win, even as they do have so much more left over that they can even do an increased buyback like Facebook announced tonight. And look, the incredible surge in demand here is about more than Amazon and Facebook and Alphabet and Microsoft. When ordinary businesses decide to migrate to the cloud, what happens, it ends up meaning that there are going to be equipment bought from AMD, great quarter tonight, from NVIDIA, from Intel, from Micron, and many other tech companies that investors seem to have trouble getting their heads around. You better believe a lot of Alphabet's CapEx is going to end up going to those companies, too. Companies need to hire Accenture, Red Hat, VMware, Salesforce, Workday, ServiceNow, great quarter from them this evening, and Splunk to facilitate their cloud adoption, get the most out of it. We like those, too. That's why I think these stocks are so terrific long-term and why I'm unwilling to abandon them, even though the market tends to throw them away, throw them away when the tenure hits 3%. So the next time you blanch when you see insane levels of spending from these tech titans, remember, they're doing it for a reason. This spending is necessary, imperative even. If these companies are going to keep generating phenomenal sales and amazing earnings growth, which is exactly what we want them to do, they're doing what they're supposed to do, people. Don't run from it. Embrace it. Stick with Kramer. Team, 60 stocks, one winner. The 2018 CNBC stock draft kicks off tomorrow. And yours truly will be doing the color. And it will be epic. 2 p.m. tomorrow, power lunch, indeed. Okay, tonight we had Advanced Micro. Going to be real good tomorrow. Got Dr. Lisa Sue on Squawk on the Street. Facebook blew the numbers away. Cambridge, what was that thing? If anyone remembers, give me a jingle. And I've got to tell you, PayPal may have been a big star tonight. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find just for you right here at Man Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.